The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us to uh, round out uh, the week that was. Follow us at danproftshow.com. Uh, that's uh, the website where you can find podcasts of our program. You can also get podcasts at uh, iTunes and Spotify and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show. Uh, we begin on this program with uh, a Peggy Noonan piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, that I thought um, is uh, consistent with sort of the uh, growing consensus in the country. That we have to find a way to live with this thing, manage it the best we can and muddle through, writes Noonan. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, she writes, there's something that should stop the class element in the public debate. It's been there the whole time, but it's getting worse. And few in public life are acting as if they're sensitive to it. There's a class divide between those who are hardline on lockdowns and those who are pushing back. Uh, the uh, overclass, as Peggy Noonan calls it, borrowing from Michael Lind in his excellent new book, The New Class War. We've had him on the show. We've talked about the book. The overclass. The overclass has been in charge since the pin, since the pandemic began. Scientists, doctors, political figures, consultants calling the shots for the average people. But personally, they have less skin in the game. The National Institutes of Health scientists won't lose his livelihood over what's happened. Neither will the midday anchor. Zing. I've called this divide the protected versus the unprotected. There is an aspect of it that is not much discussed, but bears on current arguments. How you have experienced life has a lot to do with how you experience the pandemic and its strictures. Here's a generalization based on a lifetime of experience and observation, Noonan continued. The working class people who are pushing back have had harder lives than those now determining their fate. Such a key point. They haven't had familiar economic ease. No one sent them to Yale. They often come from considerable family dysfunction. This has left them tougher or harder. You choose the word. And uh, she goes on to document some of the more egregious examples of uh, the overclass stereotype, some of the more disdainful and dismissive and frankly disgusting comments from governors, lockdown and bust governors in this country, like Pennsylvania's Tom Wolf, Michigan's uh, Eva Perone of East Lansing, Gretchen Whitmer. And I would add to Peggy's list. My home state governor, J.B. Pritzker, uh, King J.B. of House Pritzker, as I term him. Uh, she uh, reminds us what Tom Wolf said in a press briefing. Calling those opposed to a shutdown cowards, calling local officials who cave or telling local officials who, in his words, cave into this coronavirus. Uh, they will pay a price in state funding. Those folks are choosing to desert in the face of the enemy in the middle of a war, said Tom Wolf of local officials opposed to his draconian shutdown. Accusing them of treason. Of course, uh, the Eva Perone of East Lansing, Michigan, called the uh, reopen rally goers racist and misogynistic. Similar insinuations were made of uh, similar protesters, rally goers in Illinois by Governor Pritzker. Peggy Noonan uh, summarizes when you are reasonable with people and show them respect, they will want to respond in kind. 
But when they feel those calling the shots are being disrespectful, they will push back hard and rebel even in ways that hurt them. There is no time to make our divisions worse. The pandemic is a story not only about our health, but also our humanity. Indeed. And when you uh, compel the unification of opinion, you achieve only the unanimity of the graveyard, as Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson famously observed. And you treat uh, people who've always played by the rules, who are operate in good faith, who are considerate as the enemy. Let me give you an example. Beth George uh, runs and has for 31 years a little uh, resort called White Pines in uh, a community about 100 miles west of Chicago in Illinois. Uh, she uh, made an announcement on Facebook this week about the fate of the White Pines Resort. I'm going to be one of the statistics that don't make it. Um, I'm filing for bankruptcy and having to close down. Uh, I'm smart enough to know that this, the numbers just won't work for being able to reopen. I followed the rules. I believed in doing flatten the curve and closing down to save lives, to have enough hospital beds and ventilators. And then everything started to change, and I started hearing the rules of what could happen or what will happen if and when we can ever reopen, and the numbers won't work for my business. My business is based on volume. Um, I uh, do weddings, um, Sunday buffets, banquets, graduation parties, uh, retreats, dinner theater, and all those require and are based on numbers that are over 50 people. And when Governor Prisker announced the phases for opening, there won't be people able to gather in 50 or more until there's a vaccine. Until there's a vaccine, which, of course, as we know on this show, because we're rooted in science and likely outcomes based on knowledge that we have, like, for example, there's never been a vaccine developed for a coronavirus. Beth George continued. I can't be open. I've, I've worked my business. I'm the face of my business. I meet with the brides. I'm the hostess on holidays in my restaurant. I introduce the dinner theater. Uh, I poured my heart and soul in, into this place and I, I'm a mess trying to say that it won't be there anymore. All the friends and the family and the staff um, it's breaking my heart to have to say this, and I promised myself I wasn't going to cry that I could do this and get through it. But Beth George, uh, per these politicians that Peggy Nunes was referencing in some of their intemperate comments and what I know from the politicians in Illinois as a lifelong resident, uh, Beth George is the enemy. She's the villain in the story. She's the one who's selfish. They're not. Beth George's business is not essential and was deemed so by those whose salaries and benefits and job security are essential, also deemed so by them. Something else Beth George said in her Facebook post was really announcing a sale that she's doing of all of her assets in order to pay those whose deposits, pay back those whose deposits she took for the event she normally has during the warm weather months in Illinois. Something else she said about uh, her comfort level with asking questions about the balance in, and the fairness of the policies being instituted in Illinois, which are similar to many other states 
that traffic in the arbitrary and the capricious, including uh, just north of us, stop by the Wisconsin's north of Illinois, stop by uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court this week. We just talked about Michigan. Something else that uh, Beth George said worth taking note of. My freedom of speech has been silenced. Throughout this, I wanted to say, how is it possible that the person that has a business right across the street from me with cabins can be open, but I can't. I have the same business. How is it that opening at 25% occupancy could in a restaurant could ever work? No one can make money when you can only have 25% of the people normally coming in there. Sure, but uh, what does a trust fund kid like J.B. Pritzker care about that? What are those uh, imperious politicians who are interested only in the extension of their power, what is their concern about uh, whether you can make a go of it or not? You're inconsequential. You're non-essential. Open table survey out uh, today uh, projecting one in four restaurants may never come back, even despite the fact that you've got a majority of states moving into reopening, some more quickly than others, of course. But but what she said about, uh, you know, she can't uh, ask these questions, raise the specter of hypocrisy and capriciousness because the shame mobsters come from her, come from her like they come from others. You see, the rest the the, the self-styled betters in politics, media, academia, the rent-seeking business sector, they are beyond reproach because every breath they take and every move they make is to save lives. So we're told. And then that's rinsed and repeated by their allied betters in the media. But Beth George and those like her should be subjected to vile name calling and uh, absurd characterizations by the the same media types if uh, they dare challenge shame mobsters on the merits. The end result? I will miss everyone terribly. I'm a survivor, so I'm going to make it. I'm just not going to make it at White Pines. Thank you for your time. Illinois, like other states governed by Democrat, socialist, lockdown and bust politicians, is a very sick state in ways that have nothing to do with COVID-19. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show building on the uh, conversation we were having uh, before the break about beth george the uh, owner of the white pines resort in illinois Another perspective from a small business person, um, a little bit more pointed than Beth George, uh, but just as poignant in a different way. David Portnoy is the founder of Barstool Sports, popular sports and pop culture website. And uh, he took to uh, the Internet yesterday to express his dismay at uh, the moving of the goalposts and the shutdown policies generally. When did this become flatten the curve, flatten the curve, flatten the curve to we have to find a cure or everyone's going to die? Like Fauci. Seems like a nice enough dude. I've always been, oh, no agenda. 
Looks like he could be maybe the grandfather in Wedding Crashers. <laughs> Gets in front of the Senate. He's like, we reopen the country too quick. Everyone's dead. Where'd that come from? And the L.A. mayor. We're not opening the city till we find a cure. What? Find a cure? Who says we're going to find a cure? We haven't found a cure to cancer. Took AIDS 20 years or whatever. Do we even have a cure? So the economy just shut down? All we've heard forever, flatten the curve, flatten the curve, make sure there's hospital beds. We're there. Now all of a sudden it's like a 180. This is like taking a cross-country flight, six hours. They tell you flight six hours. Five hours and a half go by. They get on the intercom like, oh, just kidding. We have another 10 hours. You can't do that. People have been mentally preparing. We're doing what you ask. We've done exactly what you said. Now you're changing the rules. And some states are open, some close. L.A. shutting down, New York shutting down, Arizona is opening, Florida is opening. Seems along political lines. What is going on? Right. And the rules changes are not driven by, well, wait a second. We didn't know certain things at the beginning. We've learned certain things. And now in order to uh, adopt our strategy to the reality on the ground, we need these draconian uh, edicts. Uh, we need we we issue these draconian edicts because we need uh, these policies followed meticulously in order to save lives and and, you know, and, and then get reopened more quickly. I mean, they, they suggest that. The lockdown and bust politicians, but they don't perf- uh, prove it. They don't provide a lot of evidence in support of it. Thus, the problem. Not not to mention they provide almost no humility. They just keep repeating the same thing they've repeated since the beginning. We are men and women of science and data. We are men and women of science and data. Out of an abundance of caution, we are doing this. And out of abundance of caution, we are taking that, whether it's your individual rights or your private property. Well, that gets old real quick when all you have are refrigerator magnet cliches. uh, And those cliches remain even when the underlying conditions change. So uh, rather than rely on politicians, uh, Portnoy says, you know, if the question was put to him, take my chances with COVID-19 versus lose 20 years of my work in creating a business. You got to give these people a choice. If you told me because of Corona, I lost Barstool, I had to go get a nine to five and start over. I'd rather die of Corona, seriously, or at least take my chances. I'm not saying everybody would do that. I would. But if I've dedicated 20 years of my life, I don't want to start over. I'll fucking deal with Corona. You can't just make everybody stay inside and basically start over. It's insane. Like, what the fuck do they think is going to happen? Uh, particularly uh, David Portnoy, who I think is in his early 40s. I don't know if he has any comorbidities or not, but would have about a 99.5 to 99.9 chance of surviving coronavirus if he was to be infected. You know, risk in context, right? Not take my chances with Corona. This is this again, when you have to sort of cook the numbers and uh, and 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 scaremonger rather than than be specific to offer an honest risk assessment, it sort of undermines your credibility. And the uh, statement I'm talking about is the one you hear from certain public health officials attached to certain politicians in certain states that suggests without saying explicitly everybody has uh, equal chance of infection and serious health consequences, if not death. And of course, we know that's not true. And in point of fact, in point of fact, um, 
it also never made sense to suggest that what happened and what's what was happening in New York City could just as easily be happening in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming or uh, anywhere else in the country. Norbert Michael over at Heritage Foundation has been uh, tracking some of the data, the, the uh, lethality data. 30 counties in the country uh, are home to 48% of the total cases and 55% of the total deaths. 30 counties representing 15% of the total U.S. population. There are nearly 2,000 counties also representing 15% of the U.S. population with one or fewer deaths. They represent 3% of the total cases and 6% of the total deaths. Uh, Excuse me, 0.6% of the total deaths. So 30 counties, 15% of the total population. They have 48% of the cases and 55% of the deaths. 2,000 counties, 15% of the population. 3% of the cases, less than 1% of the deaths. And you're saying we should treat those two-thirds of the nation's counties, 2,000 counties, the same way we treat the 30 counties where we have a preponderance of the total cases and a majority of the total deaths. Which is what they've been saying. And which is why they've lost legitimacy. Which is why I'm, you know, squarely in the David Portnoy camp. I'll tell you what. Rather than rely on these politicians and watch them take, you know, sort of methodically and inexorably take my business and the quality of my life away, I'm going to take my chances. Uh, Also, still being rational, still using my common sense, still taking uh, the guidelines that have been promulgated by uh, experts in the space to heart. And then I'm going to take my chances. The idea that uh, any politician has my back, that's my backstop in life. What a governor or a mayor has to say about this, that's the side on which I want to err based on a a assessment of the behavior to this point, the decision making, as well as the knowledge we share, particularly the knowledge we all share as laymen and most of those in public office are laymen on this topic of infectious disease, just as you and most of our listeners are, which is why we try to get broad perspectives from economists and epidemiologists and infectious disease experts and others in the medical space as, uh, uh, you know, across the range of educators in terms of the impact and learning criminologists in terms of uh, how we should rethink uh, incarceration. I mean, the, the broad range, the rich tapestry of human existence in a free society rather than just putting all our eggs in one politician's basket, repeating one perspective from one or two experts that reinforce that politician's desire to exercise more control over people's lives. Yeah. Put me squarely in the David Portnoy camp. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city. We built this city on rock. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show.
on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. It's been another uh, difficult week, both in terms of deaths and illnesses, as well as detrimental economic impacts of lockdown policies. We need somebody to uh, encapsulate it for us, to to summarize it at a macro metaphysical level. I can't think of any better anybody better than uh, former Vice President Joe Biden on PBS offering this. This is not a moment for excuses or deflections or blame game. We're 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 we're, it's a, we're in the middle of a pandemic that had cost us more than eighty five thousand jobs as of today, lives of jobs. millions of people, millions of people, millions of jobs, you know. And we're in a position where you know we just got new unemployment insurance this morning uh, n- numbers, thirty six five million claims since this crisis began. Yeah, there he started to sort of right-size jobs versus lives and what the numbers were. Look, I'm not saying that President Trump is the most precise orator I've ever heard, but Joe Biden really seems to have difficulty maintaining the plot here. For more on this, please be joined again by Brian Kilmeade, co-host Fox News Channel's morning show, Fox and Friends, of course you know, host of the daily national radio show, The Brian Kilmeade Show, and the New York Times bestselling author of Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, the Texas victory that changed American history, which is now, as of May 12th, now available in paperback. Brian Kilmeade, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's just amazing. Uh, as bad as this pandemic is, if you're trying to run for president, in Joe Biden's case, it's great for him because can you imagine him every day doing two or three events a day? Uh, the amount of uh, missteps, you know, in our business especially, you say, wow, I'd, I'd like to get that sentence back. Right. But he right. has to get every sentence back. Yes, right. There's misstatements and then there are his wild misunderstandings. And and that was one of the lighter moments for Joe Biden this week compared to his answers about uh, what he knew about the Flynn counterintelligence investigation and what he even understands about what an investigation is versus a prosecution. But with respect to Biden, it is interesting because as much criticism has been heaped on Trump, here we go again, uh, maybe not as Teflon as Ronald Reagan was, but a CNN poll this week finds Trump plus seven points in the all-important battleground states. Yeah, and that's why CNN doesn't run their poll. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, because because they, they don't want to run it because it makes him look terrible. Remember that he's the worst president ever. You know, I timed it one time because the pandemic, there's so many different story angles. You know it. I mean, there's what's happening with business. What about the unemployed? What about how people teaching their kids at home? What about the college students? There's so many different stories. They cannot go five minutes without linking something bad to Trump. I mean, it's impossible to blame him for the amount of things they blame him for, but they do. And they bring every guest to Trump. It could be an eight-year-old and talking about having their mom become their teacher on Zoom, whatever it is. And it still goes back to Trump and it's still not working. Speaking of uh, eight year olds, well, she's a little bit older. How about uh, featuring Greta Thunberg on a panel about the pandemic? I I suppose that was because, you know, Sanjay Gupta and Kathleen Sebelius were not big enough draws to get any advertisers for that town hall. Well, Anderson Cooper defended it. So that makes much sense. She did talk about the Amazon. So that's worth it. I I don't get why people want to destroy the global energy source because of a 17 year old Nordic woman girl. I don't really like talking about kids in any type of negative way, but I'm just amazed that CNN says she belongs as a panelist. It's just incredible. She's interesting for a kid, obviously, but my goodness, I don't want her coming up with my energy initiatives. 
Well, also, too, I mean, just that, like, Sanjay Gupta is a medical doctor, respected physician, a former CDC director, former HHS director. I mean, the idea that she belongs on that panel, it's just sort of remarkable. I mean, as a professional, I just wouldn't participate, not because I want to be critical of her, just because, I mean, come on, what are you doing? It's the organizer who has the problem, not Greta Thunberg or any of the panelists. Yeah, and I just think that it seems like those networks are invested in shelter in place. So whatever you do, don't go out. Whatever you do, don't open up that restaurant. Remember, the governor of Georgia was the worst person in the world. And now that Georgia is going well, the numbers are still going down. You don't even hear that mentioned, uh, Brian Kemp. Does anyone talk about even Anthony Fauci pointing out the success of South Carolina and now Florida uh, as we open up? And as Texas is going so quick, even some liberal mayors are pushing back for their governor who's moving so quick because we can't do this anymore. It should all, our stories should all be... What does it take to reopen responsibly? That's what it should be. That's where the burgeoning consensus is. Um, and, and, and just talking about the governors, too, and the idea that Andrew Cuomo, who made perhaps the most catastrophic decision of any governor during this pandemic, which is the reintroduction of infected nursing home patients into nursing homes, the idea that he is still touted as America's governor effectively is just remarkable to me. He just had a press conference, which is going to push everything back about two weeks outside five innocuous counties in the very rural counties in New York. And I think things are going to get a little tough for him. And some of the criteria he has out there is just not practical. Well, uh, we'll pick up right oh. there. I want to I want to pick up on the, the point you made about the burgeoning consensus on a rational reopening. More with Brian Kilmeade, the co-host of Fox and Friends and a New York Times bestselling author of Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, the Texas victory that changed American history, now available in paperback. Brian Kilmeade, more with him right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Brian Kilmeade. He is, of course, the co-host of Fox News Channel's Fox and Friends, host of the Daily National Radio Show, the Brian Kilmeade Show. New York Times bestselling author of Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, the Texas victory that changed American history, which is now available in paperback. You want to pick that up and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, just to the point you were making before the break, Brian, about the, the, the consensus where the conversation really is in this country, whether certain politicians want it to be or not, is rational reopening. And I point to even a New York Times op-ed from uh, Marty Macri, who is a professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins, And uh, said in February, I told uh, uh, my family to hunker down for three months and I call for a national shutdown. But he writes, as circumstances have evolved, so is my thinking. We've survived the surge in hospitalized cases and suffered immense economic trauma. The full lockdown made sense weeks ago, but the situation isn't changing. More data on the virus are now available to inform our next steps. The choice before us isn't to fully lock down or to totally reopen. It is essentially, he goes on to describe, a phased reopening like you see states doing. Uh, states that are headed up by Republicans like uh, DeSantis in Florida and Kemp in Georgia, as well as Democrats like Jared Polis in Colorado. Yeah, and I, I spoke to him, too, uh, on my radio show, and it's true. And by the way, three months is gone. You know, So we were in May, and he said that in February. So well, we did it. Uh, the economic strife is much beyond anyone's expectations. And the president's going to try to put this thing back together again, but he can't do it if certain Democratic mayors are going to say, not yet. Well, let's wait till June. 
and the mayor of Los Angeles, not until August. And now we need a cure, better known as a vaccine. My goodness, what the hell are you talking about? Are you crazy? And meanwhile, I'm getting these words now that we're allowed to go to the beaches on Long Island. Wow, fantastic. But there's going to be strict restrictions. Do you believe this country? Strict restrictions. Go to the beach, open air, keep your distance. That's the restriction. If now they're going to start with the no sunbathing, don't sit on benches, um, don't linger, don't bring food. So here we go again. Way overreaching. That's how they're going to write about this period. Well, right. And, and, and of course, we're still just starting to get a handle on the brunt of the economic damage that will be inflicted uh, across the populace. I mean, 36 million people over the last seven weeks filing first time unemployment benefits is uh, is uh, just a stunning number. Retail sales down 16 percent in April, an all time record that those are stunning numbers. Yeah, we lost six percent of our GDP. I mean, we were trying to get three and four percent this quarter. That's where we were heading. So this is unbelievable. I mean, just, you know, the comparisons. What I just think now is our shows should be about effectively marshalling innovation and determination in order to effectively open up all these businesses in our country. Living with it while the scientists work hard on it. Just live with it. What do we have to do? What personal responsibilities do we have to make? In order to make this happen, it is no longer I'm going to stay home. I don't want to see any street signs and electronic warnings that uh, show courage, stay home. No. I mean, we had a mayor a couple of weeks ago who actually said, I know it's nice out. Go out for a little while, but go right back in. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's, it's more dangerous in the house. And who the hell are you to tell me to go back in? And then we spot him across town, de Blasio, in a park in Brooklyn, walking with his wife. I mean, these people think we're idiots. Well, and the other the other part of this, too, as you're suggesting, needs to be pushed back against the idea that recovery comes through the public sector, which is being advanced by de Blasio and Pelosi and uh, Schumer. The idea that it's all about uh, federal spending on state and local governments rather than opening up and allowing the productive sector to get back to producing. Yeah, I mean, the innovation that is coming out now, I'm looking at the story out of Syracuse where they have this drone, and this drone is going to be able to go to open-air stadiums and essentially sterilize the whole thing if you want. I could see go to a baseball game or a doubleheader, everyone leaves, in comes a couple of drones, and they take care of the whole stadium. And people are bidding on this now. So this is the type of innovation we need. You just leave it to the public sector, and then all of a sudden there's going to be innovations. Like security was big after 9-11. If you had security and you had a background, man, we need you in schools. We need you at theaters. We need you in the mall. Now, if you have a, if you have a sterilization company or you know of an effective way to do it for individuals or for buildings, you are going to be rolling in money. I want to revisit your book uh, because, I mean, the, the storyline couldn't be more timely in a sense, the idea of a fight for independence. Uh, all the things we were just discussing, but your book about uh, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, the uh, Texas victory that changed American history again, now available in paperback. Um, just again, reframe uh, your angle here in terms of the Alamo and, and Sam Houston's uh, paving the way for westward expansion for, for America. Yeah. I mean, what I wanted to do and what I've been doing with the books is they, you know, we had a president that could not answer the question is American exceptional nation. And without uh, digesting propaganda, I went back to prove it. And I'm not saying we're perfect, 
for the things that have happened in our past are so worthy to learn and so so uh, relevant today. So when people explain to you, whether you travel abroad or you meet uh, Americans at Tractor in America, so you can say, cite a series of events that happened in our past that outline who we are, one of which was Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers. And, you know, in a time in which the world more than ever back then was if you didn't, if your parents weren't born into wealth, you didn't have it. And if you didn't have a great job, you're not going to get it. We were a country where if you work hard and you uh, are innovative enough, you could be successful. One was Andrew Jackson, example of that. Guy was an orphan at 13, president of the United States, twice, major general, lawyer, uh, congressman. And then you have Sam Houston, who's his dad at a young age, bad farmer, used to cut out of school, used to read on his own, bad clerk. And this guy ends up being a war hero, uh, the first president of Texas, a senator from Texas, two-term governor of Texas, and a governor of Tennessee, the only one to be governor of two separate states in American history. So I just thought telling that story and how the Texas Revolution was won was worth the other 49 states to learn. In Texas, they get it. But mm. it's up to them to understand, up to the world to understand now, the other 49 states contributed to it. He is Brian Kilmeade, co-host of Fox News' Fox & Friends, host of the Daily National Radio Show, The Brian Kilmeade Show. New York Times bestselling author of the book we were just discussing, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, the Texas victory that changed American history. Pick it up now, available in paperback. Brian Kilmeade, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Listen, the more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, I'm not, I shouldn't be surprised by this. I'm not terribly surprised by this, but it's worth remarking upon. The ACLU has come out against due process. The American Civil Liberties Union, which, by the way, is nowhere to be found during the COVID-19 pandemic and the responses from various states regarding constitutional rights. But I digress. They've come out against due process in a quasi criminal proceeding. I'm talking about a lawsuit they filed against Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos's revised federal guidelines on how sexual assault allegations should be handled both on college as well as K through 12 campuses. The changes which institute the norms of our justice system into these tribunals on K through 12 and college campuses, the due process norms, the ACLU claims would inflict significant harm, quote unquote, on victims and dramatically undermine their civil rights. Presumption of innocence, due process, undermines the system. It doesn't protect everybody's rights, both the accuser and the accused. Remember, this is uh, the the Joe Biden response upon the uh, promulgation of these rules last week was to say that one of the first things I do as president when I take office in January is to 
rescind the rules, the new guidelines that Betsy DeVos has put forward. Under the old guidelines, if uh, the Tara Reid allegations against Joe Biden had happened while they were both on a college campus, Joe Biden would be convicted and expelled or worse. But he's he's fine with that because he doesn't have to face the consequences. So he's fine imposing this unfair approach to meeting out justice on college campuses. By the way, the idea that um, uh, when you're talking about uh, matters such as sexual assault, you know, harassment is a little bit more unclear, verbal and so forth in terms of criminality. Sexual assaults, not unclear. Police matters. Why are colleges or much less K through 12 systems adjudicating these matters at all? Refer to police. Stay out of the way. Police and prosecutors stay out of the way. But nonetheless, in terms of administrative proceedings, I just I have to repeat this again. Just the American Civil Liberties Union is opposed to due process, as opposed to the norms of our criminal and uh, civil justice systems that they otherwise, I, I believe, the organization was otherwise organized to defend. The suit claims the uh, new rules, new guidelines, would place a heavier burden on those alleging sexual harassment than on students who allege other forms of harassment. The standard should be uniform. It's not heavier. This, to the extent that there are burdens that are lower for other forms of harassment, the, those burdens should be raised to the due process and fairness norms as well when you're including, including you know, racial or other sorts of harassment. How are you a civil libertarian and you're opposed to due process and erring on the side of protecting the accused? It, it, are we not? I mean, again, normatively speaking here, are we not still a country that says better a thousand men go free than one guilty man be imprisoned? Apparently not if you're a supporter of the ACLU. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson weighed in on uh, the unmasking of the unmaskers, the actions taken uh, in the last week by both Attorney General Barr as well as acting uh, DNI, Richard Grinnell, of course, and also uh, about the future in terms of future hearings on these matters. They are heroes. They are patriots. They're being unfairly attacked right now, mercilessly attacked. And these gentlemen realize that this is a threat to our democracy. It is outrageous. Really? Heroes? Well, over at MSNBC, uh, former CIA director John Brennan was on with Brian Williams setting up uh, the discussion by saying over at Fox News, they're devoting a lot of time to this narrative about uh, General Flynn and uh, both operations Crossfire Razor and Crossfire Hurricane, you know, essentially insinuating they're trying to gaslight the public. And here was sort of the, the big takeaway from John Brennan's comments. I think our country is in very serious trouble. 
when you have such blatant political corruption at the highest levels of U.S. government, something I never saw, thought I would see in my lifetime. But when you have an administration, you know, the White House, uh, the attorney general, the, the acting head of the intelligence community, all acting in concert to try to advance the personal interests of Mr. To try to advance the personal interests. I thought he was going to say Obama, but uh, he actually said Trump, of course. But it's remarkable the description that's being used. So the description that's being used of the Obama White House in the closing days of the administration has now just been adopted in toto by those who are facing those accusations. And they're saying they're fighting against the very same thing. Corruption at the highest levels, abuse of power at the highest levels. We fear for our country going forward because of the precedent that the actions by fill in the blank are taking. It's the same narrative in part being argued from opposite sides. It's sort of remarkable to hear. And I think it's confusing and perhaps purposefully confusing. For more on this, Please be joined by Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report, weekdays, 5 p.m. Chicago time, and also the uh, author of the number one bestseller, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brett, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So um, the competing spin, if you will, and uh, some of this will continue, not just uh, on cable news programs, but in forthcoming Senate hearings, starting with Lindsey Graham. Yeah, listen, there's a in between here, and that is you can say that the unmasking is not illegal, which it's not. Different officials can do this in administration looking for context to intelligence. The illegal part about it is the leak to the Washington Post. Right. And you cannot say that that's not illegal. So that's a problem. And how that all came together and why it came together is really piecing it together. If you're not following the story all the way along, you can easily be told this is no big deal. In the big picture, this is no big deal. But then you have to look at the context of what was happening and what that started, which was two and a half years of Russia, Russia, Russia collusion, Adam Schiff saying he had definitive evidence. And then you look at the House intel transcripts and the people who were saying some of that behind closed doors on under oath we're saying something completely different, that they had no evidence of this. So I don't think we're going to know the full picture, the full puzzle, until we get John Durham's report, which, you know, they say is a month or two months away. And that likely will be the key to the map that gets people to explain exactly what was happening behind the scenes. I think that's right, right? Review the emails, text messages, memos, uh, interview witnesses, determine whether the un unmasking requests were lawful, because there's an issue there, too, under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. You have to have a legitimate basis, which is why there's a provision for it. And to me, that seems like at some of the determinations that need to be made by Lindsey Graham's committee. In addition to that, I want to go back to something you just said about the comparison between what uh, Brennan, Clapper, Rice, Power said under oath behind closed doors as to what they were saying on cable news channels for years to me, that's really important in terms of like trying to cut through a lot of this for uh, people, because, uh, yes, they're both sides are saying the government is weaponized to inflict damage on political opponents. Obama did it. And then the Obama uh, administration officials are saying Trump is doing it. One of the ways to suss out who has credibility on the topic is to compare what they've actually said in public under oath versus not under oath on cable TV. To me, that is the biggest indictment we have right now of the position being advanced by the Brennans and the Clappers and the Comeys of the world. I agree with you. I mean, listen, you can put all of the statements that they said on the various networks that they are now employed by 
and then you can look at the transcript that they said answering questions under oath. They're definitely different. And I think that there are things that were concerning to some Intel folks looking at the big picture of what was happening. They didn't have all the information, but at some point they did. At some point they had a good sense that there was no there there, but they continued on. At some point, Robert Mueller knows there's no real case here, but he continues on and continues on past the midterm election where arguably he knows before that. So I think there's you know a lot that we don't know about timing. Obviously, you, you can assume motive, but you have to piece other pieces together before you make the jump. And I think, you know, on the news side of things, that's what we're trying to do is let both sides say what they're going to say. Your colleague, uh, Britt Hume, called this the worst fiasco in journalism in terms of the coverage of this story in his 50 years in journalism, which is quite a statement. And I wonder uh, how much you think that this was extended, as you're describing, because of sort of the self-reinforcing loop of the sort of political elites in D.C. and uh, all of these uh, uh, agency heads and powerful people and the coverage they get from the D.C. press corps. And it just becomes, like I said, a self-reinforcing loop that extends beyond all good judgment and evidence. I think that that's right. The culture of leaking and not getting other sources to check the leak because you believe that this person is in such a high place and is in a position to know that it starts this ball rolling and suddenly then you have these stories that 27 people were contacted on this. But in reality, it's one guy that's telling you something and it all turns out to be you know falling apart. I think that that statement by Britt was something to see. I mean, he's obviously my mentor and dear friend. He has a lot of experience. And if you look back at the stories from the beginning of the Russia investigation, they are all over the map. And nobody's going back and like cataloging who said what on what cable channel or what paper was out on the limb on this. They're not doing that. And it's kind of like everything's moved on. We deal in chapters in this country, and now we're on the COVID-19 chapter. It's unfortunately a long and painful chapter, but that's where we are. With respect to Judge Sullivan, it's it's really it is strange. You've got the recent Supreme Court precedent that seems to be just about on point. But there's some history here with Sullivan, who's been an appointee of both Republican and Democrat administrations. It seems like I don't know which it is. I don't know if it's. He seizes opportunities in high profile cases to increase his profile or he has some real deep seated antagonism toward the Department of Justice because he had he got crossed with Eric Holder and now he's getting crossed with A.G. Barr. Yeah, I think it's his M.O. It's just rare. Obviously, Michael Flynn talked about that plea and made it in front of Judge Sullivan. So it happened in his court. But again, most judges are presented the cases they deal with party presentation of what is before them, not outside of that realm. So I think that it'll be interesting to see. I think it drags things out. It may drag it out enough where President Trump pardons Michael Flynn. Don't know. It's quite something to watch. Uh, turning to uh, Nancy Pelosi's introduction of uh, phase four, $3 trillion worth of spending that uh, you know basically was declared DOA by Mitch McConnell and the White House and so forth, as expected. How do you see that progression? Is a phase four, you know, maybe after we get a couple more weeks of reopening and we see how things are going, is that is that on the table for the White House and for Senate Republicans? And 
is it still all predicated on the red line that Mitch McConnell drew for indemnifying businesses that are reopening from litigation? Yeah, that's what he said last night on, on the show. And uh, and he also said, I think, that there's a likelihood and an increasing likelihood that there's going to be a phase four. They want to see how this phase works out. I think the trigger mechanism, that's what I was trying to get out of McConnell last night, is probably going to be when this next tranche of PPP money dries up. And by all estimates, it looks like June that that's going to probably happen. And so I, I think there's going to be some horse trading. This Nancy Pelosi bill is chock full with a lot of things in 1,800 plus pages. And um, from what I can tell, it is, as the president said, DOA on the Republican side. He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, host of Special Report, 5 p.m. weekdays, Chicago time. Number one bestselling author of Three Days on the Brink, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, have a good weekend. You too. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show Uh, our next guest is a doctor we profiled on the show briefly yesterday per a, a video that was put together documenting uh, his innovation in the space of primary care. He's a uh, primary care physician. His name is Dr. Timothy Wong. He's out of Pittsburgh. And uh, before we bring him on, just uh, um, a case study in the approach that he's taken uh, that was profiled in the video to sort of set up the uh, outcomes that he's producing for his patients. There's no receptionist, nurse, or assistant. Patients sign in on an iPad and wait until he calls them in. I was at work, put my finger in the mixer, and it's smashed. Brent drove over an hour to get to the eye health clinic. I've dealt with this kind of injury before. I've paid thousands of dollars, even with my insurance. Last time was actually $750 out of pocket for two stitches. The most Dr. Wong says he's charged a patient? $55. That doesn't include things like testing or medication. But he works with patients to find affordable options. Hmm. And uh, he also makes the point, too, um, which we'll discuss. But, of course, he's a primary care physician. He's not saying you shouldn't also have a catastrophic health insurance policy, which you should. But we'll get into that now with Dr. Timothy Wong. He is uh, the director of the One Man Eye Health Clinic, as you heard. He's a board-certified family medicine physician specializing in primary care and utilizing technology to improve patient health. Dr. Wong, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, develop a little bit. Give us the backstory on the model that you've created uh, for your patients and and the uh, the genesis of the model. Yeah, so... I don't think um, the inspiration came from really one source, but it came from, you know, seeing other healthcare systems, um, you know, personal experiences, working with insurance companies, um, and it was just wildly inefficient. Um, At one point, I thought, you know, doing traditional family medicine, I was, you know, kind of a culprit and, and part of the problem because I was in the system that just wasn't working. And so I thought, you know, what if I could figure out a way to practice medicine that's, you know, healthy for myself, but more efficient for patients as well. 
And so I kind of combined two models, uh, direct primary care that doesn't take insurance and um, micro practice model where I'm the only employee. I can keep costs low enough that I don't have to charge memberships and I can charge a, a low fee per visit. And it's it's 35 bucks per bit per visit, right? Yes. Yep. And so we charge $10 extra for extra problems. So if you have like a cold and diabetes that you wanted to manage at the same visit, it would be 45. Okay. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure the, uh, that's, that's pleasant sticker shock for most people, I'm sure. Um, and, and so how, I mean, if it, if it's 35 or 45 is, as the video said, the most you've ever charged anybody is $55, um, per visit. Um, uh, how is it that you can make that work and still make a living? And yet, as you heard from the one case study in the video, you have hospitals charging 10, 20, a uh, hundred times in some cases, uh, what you're charging for the same care. Sure. So I think it's kind of like, we're looking at first principles and figuring out what do we really need in primary care? At the end of the day, I think the most important element is the patient and the provider. Um, so do you really need like a billing company to chase, you know, chase you for bills you didn't pay? Um, do you need a healthcare administrators who give me, who do quality metrics and, you know, make sure there's no polypharmacy or whatever other thing they're looking at? So I'm, I'm cutting out really a lot of the middlemen and making it just super efficient. And it, I've estimated, you know, once I get the clinic fully mature, you know, I'll make a six figure salary. I won't make as much as I did, but I'll definitely live comfortably and be much happier. Yeah, you the, the much happier piece, you sort of reference that in, in the, the video that I've referenced, which is um, sort of the uh, the satisfaction you get from your job as compared to what it used to be when you were working at a hospital and, and, uh, you know, the, the increment you're willing to pay for that job satisfaction. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't think the model will generate as much uh, salary as a traditional practice unless, um, you know, you're just working pretty long hours. Um, but you know, you do trade that off for things you pretty much eliminate the worst part of the job, which was mostly paperwork and not really helping patients directly. And with respect to the paperwork and and uh, and, and dealing with um, uh, big amorphous enterprises, uh, which was worse for you in the traditional practice, government or insurance company? Not that there's a lot of difference between the two anymore. Um, I think that honestly, the biggest culprit is CMS um, because. CMS, as you alluded to, is kind of government, but also insurance. And whatever rules that CMS makes, actually, private insurances copy. So um, that's the big problem is, you know, even with, you know, Medicare for all, it seems really good to get access for people, but giving CMS more power would be pretty difficult. They would just make more rules, I'd estimate. And as uh, as you have uh, moved this practice from uh, the traditional one to the eye health clinic model, I assume you have patients that have come with you. And what do they say in terms of their feedback of uh, of receiving your care under the new model versus the old? Uh, I've heard a lot of things. <laughs> the number one comment I hear is, "I can't believe there's no you know there's no line out the door," and 
sometimes I don't know how to take it. Like, um, am I doing something <laughs> wrong because it's not that? Or, you know, is it just a matter of time? Um, I remember one young lady who I helped and she exclaimed to her boyfriend on the way out, um, it was so easy. It was so easy. And it was only $45 because I prescri- gave her a dispensed an antibiotic as well. But she was, um, yeah, she was just so surprised how seamless it was and how efficient it could, can be. What about with respect to your colleagues uh, who know what you've done and are watching what you're doing? Are you uh, expecting you're going to see uh, those uh, follow your lead? That's what the overall goal is. Um, you know, I, I believe in the model. Once we're mature, it's going to be, you know, really self-sustaining like any other decent business. Um, And it has the advantage of not limiting patient populations to small numbers. So it's really promoting access to a lot of people, which is kind of the goal of, you know, uh, Medicare for all. It's really about increasing access. Um, So I've reached out, or actually a few doctors have reached out to me and are interested in the model, but I really hope other doctors eventually do that. And as I get, you know, more funding or capital, I can start going to conventions and do other things. But right now it's kind of uh, organic grassroots kind of thing. Prove up the model and then replicate it, scale it. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Timothy Wong, Eye Health Clinic in Pittsburgh, board certified family medicine physician, specializing in primary care and utilizing technology to improve patient health. I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show the video to give you a more background, and as well as contact information for those in the greater Pittsburgh area or who want to impress upon their primary care physician to follow the Dr. Wong model. Dr. Timothy Wong, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have Take a care. good day. You too. Doctor, my eyes Tell me what is wrong Was I on You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Are we seeing the slow and steady and perhaps inevitable consolidation of thought at the hands of both big government and big tech, at the hands of big government working with big tech. There's evidence that the public is still resistant, so they're taking their time. The evidence of the resistance we talked about with Professor Humphreys from Stanford yesterday, a a University of Maryland-Washington Post survey that finds that two-thirds of Americans either would be unable or unwilling to use a virus alert platform under development by Apple and Google as a joint. And, of course, there's still a disposition to free speech and free thought culturally, even while the restriction of free speech and free thought is tolerated in large parts of our country, college campuses, even in a distance learning environment, obviously Hollywood, and on social media platforms. And In fact, this was the thrust of Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla's documentary, No Safe Spaces, wasn't it? And Dennis Prager particularly knows the sting of what he's discussing, considering how his Prager University videos have been censored on YouTube. For more on the topic, as Facebook and Twitter methodically march forward in this direction, despite the criticism, despite offering pay to free speech in congressional committee testimony, 
pleased to be joined by Khalif Lataru, who's a Real Clear Media Fellow and Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security, who's written about Facebook's new evidence-free rating system. Khalif, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, so uh, let's start with your piece at RealClearPolitics.com about uh, Facebook's false, quote-unquote, rating system, and you give a, a very uh, easy-to-follow case study in terms of how an opinion be- can quickly become false if it's the wrong opinion. Yeah, you know, it's, it's actually a really interesting story. So last month, Emmy Award-winning journalist Shell Atkinson shared this video on Facebook. You know, she immediately, you know, Facebook sent her this notice saying that, you know, you've shared, quote-unquote, fake news. We're notifying your followers. You can be have all kinds of bad things happen. And when she went there and clicked on the link that says, you know, why is this thing being fake news? It pointed her to this website, I believe it was uh, Health Feedback, which is this fact-checking site that wasn't actually fact-checking that video at all. It was actually fact-checking a New York Post opinion piece. And what's interesting about this is the, the actually under Facebook's own rules, uh, it's actually a really interesting story because under Facebook's own rules, A, opinion pieces can't be fact-checked, uh, and B, one of the two fact-checkers uh, that reviewed this and found, uh, you know, declared that these things were false, um, actually worked at the lab in question. So this, this video was about, uh, you know, what are the possible origins of the COVID-19 virus? Is it possible that it might have escaped uh, from uh, a lab in Wuhan? Um, and it's interesting because one of the two fact-checkers uh, in her own response says, you know, I've worked at this lab for two years, uh, and so I believe that this is false. And it's, it's a really interesting thing that, you know, people involved with search, we think of fact-checkers as these objective people on these, you know, uh, essentially objective experts that are, you know, have deep knowledge that are objectively reaching out and looking at things, versus here we have a case of someone actually involved in the story, so to speak, uh, rendering judgment on it, uh, and it's an opinion piece to boot. But yet, despite all of that, this is actually being used in the real world to say, hey, you know, anyone that shares these things, this is fake news, and we're going to notify your followers, your purveyor, fake news. We're going to take potentially all these sanctions against you. So it's this really kind of, this, we have this veneer of fact checkers uh, objectively telling us what's true. But when you, you pull you pull the curtain aside, essentially, you see it's it's, it's not nearly what uh, what they make it out to be. Uh, and so and, and it just in terms of how this then is uh, pushed through the system, once it's declared false by the fact checker, then anybody who shares the story, it's also that uh, designation follows their sharing. Exactly. So what, what happens with Facebook is they have this, these partners of fact checking sites. Uh, all around the world, they have all these, these different organizations that they've designated as fact checking partners. So what happens then is, uh, Facebook or the organization can say, here's a story that we, that we believe needs to be reviewed. Then they have uh, fact checkers. People go through it, and then they cast a judgment on it. And they say it's true, it's false. They have actually a whole bunch of different ratings. They can say it's mostly true, it's mostly false, it's true but needs context. Um, but essentially what you have then is a fact checker can go in, say this story is false, and from that point forward, Anyone that shares that story on Facebook is declared to be a purveyor of fake news. Let's pick it up there uh, when we come back with Khalif Lataru, RealClearMedia.com fellow. want to talk about uh, whether or not the rules for these social media platforms are really, there are no rules. There's just a market position we're trying to drive. More with Khalif Lataru right after this.
called fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking about Khalif Lataru. He's a RealClearMedia.com fellow, senior fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. And we're talking about um, the um, regulating of content that Facebook and Twitter, the social media, big social media platforms do, particularly in the space of policy and politics. Khalif, let me just start with, before we get to Twitter, because I want to get your view on Twitter's designations now of, uh, of disputed. But generally speaking, do we have here Facebook and Twitter, uh, Google, YouTube? Here are our rules, you know, in defense of uh, of quality content and fair play and consistent with the principles of of free speech, so long as there's you know no appeal to prurient or or hateful interests. Those rules are set forward, but then in terms of the actual implementation, the message is simple for the minders, which is. We want to eliminate content that we disagree with, and we want to drive content that we agree with. You know, that's what makes these stories so fascinating is on the surface, what the social media companies are doing sounds perfectly fantastic. We're going to get rid of horrible, you know, hate speech. We're going to get rid of falsehoods. We're going to ensure that people see real, you know, high-quality, non-hateful information. The problem is, how do you define that? Who defines what's real and what's false? Who defines, I mean, it's sort of very Orwellian, 1984, of, you know, what's real and what's false? What's acceptable speech that we're permitted to talk about or acceptable beliefs and what's not acceptable? And what's interesting here is, you know, liberal democracies like the United States, you know, we've debated these issues for over the centuries. We've come up with a very expansive, essentially, protections for free speech. Other than a handful of cases... I mean, a U.S. citizen is allowed to do a lot of things. What's interesting here is private companies, all of a sudden in the last 10 or 15 years, you know, you have these social media companies that have really stepped forward and said, the government may allow you to say anything you want, but we're going to come up with our own rules for what you're permitted to see and say on our platforms. The average person today, you hear from your elected official, probably through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, social media. You talk to them oftentimes on social media. You know, our public debates about where we want our country to head occur on social media. So, you know, that the public square that's so crucial to democracy, that's in private hands now with these companies where tomorrow Mark Zuckerberg can say, hey, you know what? I don't agree with this idea. I don't want people to talk about that flip a switch and suddenly it disappears. Like you saw with Facebook banning posts that encourage certain types of reopening protests. Facebook simply said, we're not going to allow people to discuss or organize those here. Well, right. And, and of course, the argument would be from the free market side that, uh, hey, look, uh, they built it and you came. So it's their private platform and they're allowed to make the rules for your participation. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to that, but uh, there still are contract rights issues. There are still issues with respect to commercial fraud if you're promulgating rules of use and you're not abiding those rules of use. And that that seems to me what we're seeing, where hate speech will soon become, uh, well, statements like, I disagree, will soon become hate speech. I mean, it, it is the effectively the de facto 
consolidation of opinion, the enforced unanimity of opinion when it comes to things like, as you were just describing, COVID-19 related policies. And, and I'll tell you, too, it's, it's not just the fact that we have these rules, but the rules are there are no rules in, in terms of their application, also in terms of their non-application. So, for example, I posted a story on Facebook just to personalize it. It's the first time it's ever happened to me. I posted a story where there was somebody had identified that uh, a California news outlet and a Jacksonville, Florida news outlet used the same picture of people on the beach to essentially push the idea that uh, beaches shouldn't be reopened because people are on the beaches and they're not social distancing. Same picture in California and Florida outlets. And uh, that and it, it was, in fact, used on those two outlets. But the dispute from Facebook was that's misleading because there was some sort of technical glitch that resulted in that same picture being used on the in the Florida story that was used in the California story. But they didn't flag the stories themselves uh, and the technical glitch and provide that context. They just flagged it when somebody else repurposed the story to make a point that the story was misleading. So I'm misleading for posting about it, but the original post isn't misleading. It's that sort of stuff where the standards are applied depending on the perspective being driven that um, uh, is concerning if people don't understand it and may ultimately uh, be their undoing or provide for uh, what uh, conservatives have talked about for a long time, which is the rise of a competitor in that space that actually is committed to uh, free communication on their platform. You see, that's, that's actually exactly the, the point of my piece, and, and that's actually a fascinating and, and unfortunately all too common case um, where, you know, one of the problems, these companies, you know, despite the fact that they're literally defining what's true and false uh, for society now, um, they, you know, there's no transparency into what they do. When they, do, when they get things wrong, um, you know, like even like in this particular case, you know, Facebook's own rules say an opinion piece cannot be fact-checked, period. Um, and here's a fact checker that took an opinion piece and did it. So they violated and declared the it false. Right. It, it took weeks uh, for the New York Post uh, to finally get Facebook to, you know, quietly change the ruling. But even then, you know, Facebook didn't issue a public statement saying, hey, you know, we got this wrong. We apologize. There's no transparency. So when these things go wrong, um, we have no visibility into that. Um, and we don't even know, like in this particular case, for me as an information scientist, when I see, hey, you know, this is someone associated with the Wuhan lab that's rendering judgment uh, on a story involving that lab, you know, that, I mean, that, that's just completely antithetical to this whole idea of a neutral, Impartial. you know, yeah. a neutral independent third party. And, you know, it's just this, this whole world of, and, you know, again, to your point, well, you know, they're, they're walled gardens, you know, where we're we don't have to use Facebook or Twitter, but you actually almost do today. You know, you think about the president of the United States, you know, President Trump, he's on Twitter. Uh, if you want to reach the president of the United States, you have to use Twitter. Yes, you could write a letter and hope it doesn't get lost in the, you know, the White House yeah. uh, mail, mail room. Or you could just tweet directly to the president. And that's the problem is these are the platforms that reach almost all of the major members of Congress now. They're on social media. That's how you talk to your elected officials today. You know, local government here in Washington, local government, it's Twitter, it's their Facebook pages. That's where you have to go to even find out, you know, is the, you know, is the, are the roads going to be open tomorrow? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's all social media. So really, government has adapted. Social media is essentially the way we communicate with our government now, so we can't avoid it. And that's yeah. a fascinating thing. And Trump on the on the center right, Trump is about uh, the only one on Twitter who's uh, too big to be censored, at least for now. He is Khalif Lataru. He's RealClearMedia.com fellow and senior fellow at the George Washington University Center. 
for Cyber and Homeland Security. Khalif, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Time now for another reason why Dan Proft is single. Yeah, another installment of why Dan Proft is single. Remember, this is why I'm single from my perspective, not from the female's perspective. I get to have a say, too. And uh, this comes from a uh, Dear Prudence advice column at Slate.com, of all places. Five years ago, I broke up with Amy because she couldn't have children. I felt awful about it. But having a family had always been important to me, and she wasn't interested in adoption or surrogacy right from the start. We just couldn't imagine a future where we were happy, so they broke up. Uh, He later ran into Amy at a farmer's market recently. She was six months pregnant. Uh, We talked for a while, he writes, I congratulated her, and she asked if I was a dad yet. When she found out I wasn't, she said this baby that she was carrying could have been his if he had passed her test. He writes, according to Amy, she'd never been told she was infertile. She just wanted to see if I loved her enough to give up being on a dad, give up being a dad. So she lied for over four months until we broke up, saying that she was infertile. She couldn't have children and didn't want to do adoption or surrogacy. Uh, he writes, I can't get over it. I don't know if it's because I'm stuck inside of uh, and stuck inside on my own. This is, of course, current. So sh- shut down or what? But it just eats at me. <laughs> the advice he gets from, uh, you know, one of these daffy advice columnists. It's a beyond a weird thing to do what Amy did. Of course, you find yourself wondering whether you really ever knew her and having trouble squaring this bizarre, awful, unloving trick with the idea that an otherwise normal person, employee, wife, mother could do something like that. I tell you what, we're in the uh, era of data. So let's just go to the data on this and figure out uh, where Amy fell on the hot versus crazy matrix. And this probably explains it so that our um, our friend who shall remain uh, remain nameless can uh, get on with things. Okay, so this is the universal hot crazy matrix. It's everything a young man needs to know about women. Um, I've developed this on my own over 46 years of living on the earth. So. Above an eight hot, and between about a seven and a five crazy, this is your wife zone, okay? Above the danger zone, above the, uh, above the crazy line, we have the danger zone. This is your redheads, your strippers, anyone named Tiffany. Um, this is hairdressers. This is, where, this is where your car gets keyed, you get a bunny in the pot, uh, your tires get slashed, and you wind up in jail. So uh, my guess, I don't know, Amy, but she probably was in the hairdresser Tiffany zone there uh, in terms of the hot, crazy matrix. And so that probably explains why she uh, uh, played that cruel trick on you, asked you, you know, that question. And the bottom line, you know, sort of the net net of it, dude, you dodged a bullet. Yeah, speaking of entertainment, sort of. I want to uh, direct our listeners to, again, check out No Safe Spaces, which is available now to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com, talking about the number one political documentary of 2019, produced by the great Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla uh, in advance of the fight for free speech in a free America. For my listeners, for a limited time only, discount code SAVE25 gets you 25% off No Safe Spaces. 
You can live stream. You can uh, live stream it on demand right now. No safe spaces at nosafespaces.com. Save twenty five for twenty five percent off. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Uh, yesterday evening, CNN featured a panel discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic that included future chair of the Al Gore Fear Studies Department at Harvard University, Greta Thunberg. Well, I mean, first of all, we didn't, we still haven't gotten tested um, because here uh, you don't, you don't get tested unless you, you're in need of of, uh, of medical help, so so of course I don't know if I if I've had it, but uh, but I, I isolated myself anyway, and uh, because it, it is the right thing to do. I'm a proponent of her isolating herself. Actually, it was great to have her there uh, because otherwise nobody would have tuned in to listen to Sanjay Gupta and uh, a couple of other oh, Kathleen Sibelius. So uh, dust you bring dusting her off, breaking her out of the emergency glass. This is the whole reason they had Greta Thunberg. They didn't get PPP money, so they got to figure out a way to generate revenue somehow. She is an exemplar, though, of um, leftist thinking. I mean, she has been fully, fully lobotomized with leftism. Uh, Our friend over at Spiked Online, Brendan O'Neill, had a good piece on this, too. The perversion of the left's messaging on this. Going back to work is being sent off to die. And that's the same argument that's being made by... Democrat socialist politicians here. There's actually campaign slogans, as uh, Brendan O'Neill mentions. Pseudo-Marxist at Novara Media, back to work, catch the virus, save the billionaires. Because for leftists, you know, the market is just more than, is a little more than a conspiracy in which the filthy rich kill, <laughs> kill their employees to make money. Going back to Brendan O'Neill, they're ramping up the culture of fear in a desperate effort to preserve their bizarre, historically unprecedented anti-work outlook as a good and noble thing. Actual facts, like the fact that under 40s have made up 0.75% of the deaths from COVID, don't get so much as a look-in. No, keep all workers at home, even the fit, healthy young ones. And the response from the Vanguard class there, like here, uh, this is almost uh, verbatim what Ocasio-Cortez said. Owen Jones, who's a columnist for The Guardian, the working class is being ordered to return to their function as generators of revenue. That's how he describes people's desire to go back to work. O'Neill writing, only someone completely removed from the reality and aspirations of working class communities could describe work in such dehumanizing terms, precisely. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Rupert Darwall, strategy consultant and policy analyst, former special advisor to the UK's Chancellor of the Exchequer and author of The Age of Global Warming, history as well as green tyranny exposing the totalitarian roots of the climate industrial complex rupert thanks for joining us i guess given uh, the books that you've authored uh, we should let you have a shot at greta thunberg before we move on to more heady matters i love that 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 intro on greta the interesting thing to me though is that greta is swedish and 
as we know, but Sweden is arguably the only country in the Western world that has adopted a scientifically sensible and risk-acknowledged way of dealing with the COVID, which is not to lock down the economy and to let it spread and let its population acquire herd immunity, which apparently Stockholm is well on the way to doing. So Greta Thunberg could have provided a really valuable uh, lesson to the viewers of CNN on the merits of the Swedish way. The fact she didn't says an awful lot about who's running her. Let's uh, you know expand this out to Brendan O'Neill's point and the point that others have made. This notion that being ideologically committed to a lockdown is being ideologically committed to the working class. I find that the lockdown mantra absolutely extraordinary. There's a very powerful piece, not by someone who I normally agree with, and I don't necessarily agree with his reasoning, but Larry Summers, who was Bill Clinton's last uh, Treasury Secretary, wasn't he? But he says the pandemic is a huge historic event and it will lead to an Asian century. Basically, the West will be left in the ditch. And I think that is, sadly, I think that is the case for Western Europe. So, you know, as, as people grow older and you can tell when you're old and you suffer ill health, you get a bout of ill health. You never recovered the way you were before. And if you look at Europe after the various, after the big recession of 2008, 2009, Europe didn't really recover. It's basically been flatlining. And I'm afraid after what we're experiencing now, I think it will just be a slump. Whereas in America, you have a president who, well, he's 73, but his vigor and energy and his desire to keep, his belief that the future is more important than the present. I think America will pull itself out of the COVID slump. But I fear for, for Europe. I think uh, Europe's going to just turn into a, a series of zombie economies. Well, it'll be interesting, cause, too, because you, you may have it uh, uh, be quite uneven. You mentioned Sweden as compared to perhaps some other Western European countries, and perhaps the same in the United States. You're going to have states that are growing in population and are sensible with respect to fiscal policy that are attracting, which is why they're growing in population. You know, they will recover and be robust again, the Texases and the Floridas of the world, the Illinois and the New Yorks and the Californias, uh, maybe less so. I think that's the advantage of a federal of a federal system that you can see what works and what is crazy. And the other country one should mention that seems in, in Western Europe that seems to be getting it right is Switzerland, which is removing its lockdown. So I've made a generalization, but I should say Britain is one of the worst. The fear that's induced in the population, they don't want the lockdown eased up at all. The vast majorities there think the lockdown restrictions should be harsher. And there's this thing about, you know, you can't risk children going back to school, even though children not only don't get COVID, but don't transmit it. And so this is incredibly low risk. We have no sense of risk in our society and how to handle it. Like a spike in the death rate leads to fear amongst the general population. And you can't live your life in fear. And the societies that live in fear the whole time are basically societies that are just going nowhere. They have no future if you're frightened the whole time. A part of what you're hearing in the discussion here is just, you know, the generational reflection, which is, gosh, I mean, World War II generation compared to the people in charge now and uh, the reaction you're getting from younger people who would have been sort of the parallel to the younger generation that went off to war in World War II. I wonder, I mean, the land of Winston Churchill, I wonder if you're uh, hearing some of those same sort of wistful, nostalgic references to the World War II generation as compared to what England has become. Well, we had VE Day last week, and that was a reminder. One of the things that I find really strange about, certainly in, in Britain, is the reaction of young people, because they 
are effectively immune. Their chances of getting the virus and suffering anything really bad from it are tiny, and yet they are some of the most fervent lockdowners. I simply can't, I can't explain it. I can't rationalize it, uh, that they have become gripped with fear. And if young people are gripped with fear, that's a problem in itself. And it's, I think it's partly because we have the misfortune to have a prime minister who not only contracted the virus, became very seriously ill from it. And Boris Johnson's 55. And, and then to, he was on a ventilator and nearly died. And that has accentuated the sort of narrative of fear that pervades British society. There isn't the get up and go. We, there's been no spontaneous demonstrations that you've had in Illinois and other parts of the United States and in Michigan, noticeably, of, of people saying this is too much. This is an infringement of basic freedom. There's another point that I find really interesting in all this, if you like, an ideological point, that the left and, the, if you like, the mainstreams all say that the libertarians and conservatives don't believe in society. They're just purely for the atomistic individual and the selfish gene and so forth. Actually, it's the libertarians, it's the conservatives who want people to be allowed to go out into society because that's where we belong. And this inhumane locking up of people in tiny little units and separating them, which the collectivists and the left are now inflicting and imposing on people, is profoundly antisocial and anti-the individual. Well, right. I mean, we're in, we're, we're, if we're not there, we're nearing the Orwellian territory of uh, freedom and slavery. I mean, that's essentially the yes. argument I'm hearing from the left. Yes, that's that that, that that's right. And this, uh, and as you pointed out, this idea that that work, there is a dignity to work. There is a dignity to labour, which the 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 left have completely stripped stripped away, and they just feel that people should get they should just get money for nothing. Absolutely. And there is no, and that, that is why I think Larry Summers, if you'd like in the, in, in the big picture, Larry Summers is onto something in saying that the pandemic could well lead to an Asian century because they don't believe that. They don't think that money grows. You just get money for just sitting on your, you know, sitting at home. And that, that will be the future. I, I think there is, and I think, you know, to be political about this, I think what November 2020 will be about when you, when you guys go vote, that will be the decision point, whether America is going to go join the declinists across, across the Atlantic or, or, or pick, pick herself up and say we have a future, the best, our best days are yet to come. He is Rupert Darwall, strategy consultant and policy analyst, former special advisor to the UK's Chancellor of the Exchequer, author of The Age of Global Warming, A History and Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. Rupert Darwall, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. With the Sultans With the Sultans of Swing Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The uh, Cheesehead State, I don't think it's technically, I think it's called, technically called the Badger State, but I, I prefer the Cheesehead State. Uh, giving hope to the land of Lincoln, at least the state Supreme Court is, by shutting down Governor Tony Evers's shutdown order this week in a 4-3 decision, which has um, uh, been, you know, radically politicized as everything is these days, even COVID-19 related. But the decision from the majority, the holding, pretty straightforward, which is basically, hey, um, we have thro- three co-equal branches of government, Governor, 
and public health director, and the legislative branch gets to exercise the power it has been constitutionally conferred. That is what is at stake here. I don't really understand the controversy exactly, other than there's a disagreement over the policy. And so the governor has taken the position that the way to avoid a disagreement with the legislature on a particular policy is to ignore the legislator and just act as the legislature. This action will inevitably lead to more sickness and death. The court will have blood on their hands and the people of Wisconsin will not forget. That was the attorney who represented Evers commenting on the decision. The uh, predicate to the decision was this questioning by Justice Rebecca Bradley. Isn't the very definition of tyranny for one person to order people to be imprisoned for going to work, among other ordinarily lawful activities? Also, in the uh, ruling for the majority, the uh, justice who penned the opinion just basically said, you know, if it's a, um, a fire, you've got to act immediately. If it's a pandemic that afflicts the state for month after month, then you can act immediately under emergency powers, but then you have to seek uh, to enlist the legislature for legislative approval. I mean, this is like a, a fifth grade civics class. Well, why is this in controversy? It's only in controversy because you have politicians like Evers and Pritzker and others believing that they are where the law begins and ends. And uh, thankfully, the Wisconsin Supreme Court said they're not. If only we had a co-equal branch in Illinois that would be so enlightened. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Will Flanders. He is the research director at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So um, how are Cheeseheads reacting to the verdict? Yeah, so I think there's a, a high level of satisfaction in general. Of course, you have, you know, just like any other state, we have we have division and we have some at the county level that are implementing similar ordinances to the safer at home order. So that's kind of where things have gone now. The counties association told counties, actually, you're not going to be able to keep these in place. They're going to be declared illegal as well. So some counties like Kenosha, right across the, the border there, has backed off. Some counties are keeping them in place and no doubt will uh, will be back in court again uh, to see if these things uh, can pass muster of the Constitution. It was uh, sort of a, a stunning decision in the first place based on the caseload that Wisconsin was experiencing at the end of last month for Governor Evers to arbitrarily extend the shelter in place order to May 26th. And, you know, forget it, just setting aside the legislature for a second. There is this concept of consent of the governed. You know, Mike DeWine, uh, the governor of Ohio, has been a good example of somebody who's uh, got some sensitivity to that. So reversing policies he was going to enact because he wasn't receiving consent of the governed, popular consent and in, in a separate and distinct from legislative consent. And um, it, it seems like Evers just got out over his skis with respect to where Wisconsin residents were. I think that's right. I think he was he sort of followed the national Democrats around the country and sort of implementing some of these things. You know, if you look back during the first month, during the initial safer at home order, there wasn't a great deal of opposition. You know, on both sides, uh, we didn't really know where we stood. We didn't know the the level of danger this virus posed. And there wasn't a lot of folks out there saying this shouldn't be in place. Uh, but a lot of us, you know, including some of the lawyers at my own place where we, we were filed an amicus brief in this case, this is unconstitutional, right? You can't just extend these things. You've exceeded your limited emergency powers here. And that's why we uh, filed the amicus brief. That's why the legislature sued. Um, so there was there was goodwill at first, but that was sort of burned away uh, with the extension that, as you say, a lot of folks would say wasn't necessary. 
I wanted to um, move to this survey that uh, you did there at uh, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty about uh, families' experience with K through 12 education in this time. I, I um, uh, rope in Brendan O'Neill's piece and spiked online talking about working people in England. The naivete of believing that halting economic life is in any way good for working people is staggering. The lockdown most severely affects working class people who need to leave their homes to earn a living and its global consequences will be most severely felt by the world's lowest paid workers. Well, uh, to some extent, uh, this is applicable here, uh, just on a different, uh, uh, different measurements, but uh, the same dynamic. Uh, and you find that in your survey about the experience that Wisconsin families are having with K through 12 education in these times, that those on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum are getting hit the hardest. That's right. In our survey, we did a survey of 400 Wisconsin parents uh, two weeks ago. So we didn't capture the newest changes, but sort of the environment as it still is in Illinois and as it was in Wisconsin until a couple days ago. Uh, but what we found is that uh, a lot of families are having to actually spend money on educational resources, you know, whether it be for computers and tablets or uh, just supplemental, you know, materials, uh, tutoring online. And some of those expenses are quite large. You know, 10% of the respondents in our poll so they've had to spend more than $500. So this suggests, you know, folks that are going out and having to buy computers. But the most concerning thing was that the lowest income respondents, those that made under $20,000 in household income a year, were the most likely to say they've had to spend money. So those with the least ability to spend are having to spend the most uh, under this uh, under this new situation that we're in in K-12. And uh, in big districts uh, like the Milwaukee School District, there's a sizable percentage of families that are reporting their children are uh, you know, through distance learning are being um, uh, taught the same material that th that has already been covered. I mean, there's no new learning going on. That's right. There were a couple concerning things here. We we asked how many hours are you spending on education a week? And the second most common answer, about 40% of respondents was one to 10 hours. So when you compare that to how much learning goes, you know, into a, a regular school day, you know, you have 30 hours a week or more in the classroom. That's concerning. You know, we may not expect the same amount of learning time, particularly, as you mentioned, with families having to divide, uh, you know, their work environment at home and uh, uh, with their child's education. But one to 10 hours does call into question the extent to which kids are going to be prepared to move on uh, to next year uh, if, they're, if their learning is that little. And we also asked, are you covering new material, old material, or some combination of both? About 17% of respondents said that they're only covering old material. Um, and this was more prevalent in, in Milwaukee, as they've really sort of said in some of these districts, we're just going to review, we're not going to do anything new, and we'll go back next year. But that's going to put these kids way behind in districts where they're already behind compared to the other areas of the state. You should uh, maybe in the next survey you do ask if uh, people believe that the teachers and administrators' salaries should be held back permanently to their previous salaries and benefit packages uh, going forward. How about that? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting idea. I mean, the, the reality is that, you know, we see that folks are having to spend money and we see that education is happening in the home environment. Um, school district buildings are not open. There has to be some savings there, right? It may not be a total savings. They're still paying staff. Uh, but some of that money, why can't it go back to uh, to the parents and families? Why can't we create an education savings account, at least in the very short term, so that families have that resource that otherwise is sort of being wasted on an empty school building uh, to use for things that would help their child keep up and continue to be educated? And we're, we're big supporters of ESAs in general, and particularly in this instance, I think there's a good cause uh, to advocate for that, both in Wisconsin and around the country. He is Will Flanders, Research Director at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Will, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you so much. Have a great day. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Don't let governors fool you about reopening. That's the message that Yanir Bar-Yam provides in a piece uh, that uh, was posted on CNN. He is a reputedly an expert on pandemics and other complex systems. He's the president of New England Complex Systems Institute. He advises the WHO Global Outbreak and Alert Response Network on Ebola eradication. And he's spearheading the effort of more than 4,000 volunteers working to stop the COVID-19 outbreak at ncoronavirus.org. Okay. Citizens should know that uh, reopening states is very unlikely to restore economic well-being. In fact, prematurely reopening would likely cause the disease to escalate and lead to prolonged economic hardship. Every public interaction will endanger our health, causing sickness and death and further burdening our health care system. Other countries could forbid their citizens from visiting the United States and Americans could be barred from much of the world. Even trade may be viewed as an unacceptable risk. Based on the research I've conducted, Mr. Bar-Yam concludes, I believe if we take a more aggressive approach now and keep towns and cities locked down, we can defeat COVID-19 in four to six weeks. Hmm. Sounds like something we heard uh, back in March from folks like Yanir Bar-Yam. In fact, it was in March. He called for the U.S. to impose a strict five-week national lockdown with internal and external travel restrictions to bring us near zero infections. Uh, He says the uh, lockdowns that happened um, really by the third and fourth weeks of March were too little too late. Uh We must understand the coronavirus is very deadly. Uh, We must understand that uh, almost all reopening states from California to Pennsylvania currently have a critical mass of new cases of existing infections that could see new outbreaks in the coming days and weeks. And thirdly, we must understand without extreme preventative measures, we've seen how coronavirus infections doubled every two to three days at one point in different areas. And that could happen again is essentially the point. That's one perspective from the uh, perspective of a reputed expert on infectious disease. Let's get another one. That's what we tried to do here is bump perspectives against one another, see what uh, most uh, is most supported by the evidence and the logic. To help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Trost, who's an associate director of the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise at Oklahoma State University. And he's penned a, a very compelling piece on a risk management, uh, detailing a risk management approach to defeating the virus. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Certainly. Um, so I, I uh, the from my, from my read of your piece and my read of that piece I was referencing from Mr. Baryam, um, there are very different conclusions being drawn about the uh, next step. So uh, let's go through yours and maybe we bump them up against Mr. Baryam's. You, uh, you start um, by sort of uh, distinguishing between true uncertainty and risk um, as the basis for your uh, framework for uh, rec- for 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 investigation and then recommendation. So just why don't we just start there? Uh, true uncertainty versus risk, and where we are on that continuum. Yeah. So Professor Frank Knight uh, was an economist at the University of Chicago. 
in the 1920s. And he wrote a book called Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit, where he identified the differences between uh, risk and uh, what he called true uncertainty. And the difference is the existence of relevant prior cases. So risk is that situation where you can assign a probability to uh, a future event based on something you know about similar cases that have occurred in the past. And Knight said when we're facing true uncertainty, it's a situation where we don't have that tie-in to relevant prior cases. And when we look at this pandemic, uh, we are in the in the realm of true uncertainty uh, when we rely on things like development of a vaccine, because we've never in human history developed a successful vaccine against a human coronavirus. And so what I've done is uh, looked at the things that are on the risk side of the spectrum rather than the uncertainty side of the spectrum. Let's let's hold there the risk side of the spectrum versus the uncertainty side of the spectrum. I want to pick it up right there when we return with Steve Trost, who is an associate director of the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise at Oklahoma State University. More with uh, Steve Trost right up there. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Steve Trost. He's the associate director of the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise at Oklahoma State University. He has a bachelor's in engineering from MIT, a master's and PhD in engineering from Oklahoma State University, and a PhD in entrepreneurship from Oklahoma State University. And we were uh, where we left off was a, a discussion of the approach that uh, Steve took in analyzing a strategy for defeating COVID-19 rooted in risk management, but risk management focused on assessing tr- actual risk versus uh, true uncertainty. Um, so, Steve, pick it up there. So, yeah, so my analysis uh, really relies upon two assumptions that are solidly in the risk category. The first assumption is that this virus affects different people differently. The data that we have are age uh, differentiated. So we have data that show that if you're over 70 years old, your likelihood of dying from catching the virus is much, much higher, about a thousand times higher than if you're in your uh, teens or 20s. Secondly, the second assumption is that those who are exposed to the disease and recover will have some level of immunity, which that is the fundamental basis of the assumption that a vaccine can actually be developed. And that is what we we observe with existing uh, human coronaviruses. So, you know, there are two common human coronaviruses that are widely spread throughout society that are the cause 
common cold on a seasonal basis. So we know that there is immunity uh, and even cross immunity between those viruses. So, so this is not something that is in the realm of uncertainty. You know, this is something that we understand the way that immunity is d- developed based on exposure to viruses. Well, and, and the, just to stop you for a second, too, it's important that you make the, the point, even though this has been made uh, ad nauseum uh, in the public sphere, uh, about we, we what we understand about how the universe, uh, the, excuse me, how the virus treats different universes differently, uh, because you, you have statements from public health professionals like Yanir Bar-Yam, whose piece I was reading before, opposing the reopenings. We must understand the coronavirus is very deadly. It's just a, a generic statement. Yes, it is very deadly, but only within certain cohorts. And you make the additional point, and there's even more nuance than age. From your piece, I recall, a 80-year-old who is in good health and has no underlying condition like obesity or diabetes or a heart condition is better positioned to fight off the virus than a 60-year-old with a comorbidity. So the, the combination of age and comorbidities makes this really a much more specific than, say, influenza A or B. And that's sort of lost in some of the arguments that seem to be advanced by people like uh, Mr. Baryam. That's correct. And the ultimate focus of my analysis is on the danger of uniform approach to social distancing. If we treat everybody the same, in other words, if, if we apply social distancing guidelines uniformly across the entire population, what that means is that the exposure is going to be uniform across the population, which means that those who are at greater risk have the same chance of getting an infection, but they have a much greater chance of dying from that infection. So my point is, we know that this virus treats different people differently. So what we really need from a risk management standpoint is we need a system that protects those that are at greatest risk so that we have an uneven exposure to the virus so that we actually have what I refer to as a targeted exposure uh, where we're basically setting things up so that those who are at very low risk have a much higher probability of getting infected with the virus because their chances of serious complications is is much less. And and this is sort of a de facto uh, herd immunity immunity thinking behind the approach that should be employed. Well, and, and vaccine is a, human, is a herd immunity approach as well. Right, yes. Okay. The difference is with the vaccine, you know, we're introducing a hopefully harmless portion of the RNA of the virus in order to elicit an immune response without symptoms. Now, we know that with this virus, that the vast majority of the very healthy people who are exposed to it are asymptomatic. They actually have exhibit no symptoms, which is exactly what you want from a from a, a virus. I mean, I'm sorry, from a vaccine, right? Your ideal vaccine, there's no symptoms, but there's an immune response. <clears throat> and then you build humi- uh, herd immunity through that natural process of the human body producing uh, antibodies uh, as a result of the immune response. So really, my approach is, you can think of it as a natural vaccine, right? You know, we want to allow those people who are at very low risk of serious complications to go ahead and uh, live life uh, the way they normally would and just allow the virus to do its thing with those individuals while we are aggressively protecting 
the high-risk individuals. Yeah, I mean, and this, the point of this is yeah. we can aggressively protect high-risk individuals for a short period. We can't do it for, you know, 12 to 18 months, uh, as well as we can do it for, you know, six to eight weeks. And this virus is uh, is so prolific uh, that it would probably only take, you know, six to eight weeks of, of normal circulation in the in the population. Uh, to get us, you know, fairly close to that population immunity. Well, and and it just it it makes uh, sense the symmetry of it, right? It's the idea that virus treats different people differently, so so should we, um, and uh, exactly. particularly against the backdrop of of as you point out, uh, two things we've never done before. You already made mention an effective vaccine for a class of human coronaviruses, and two, this uh, d- doing the approach that Mr. Baryam uh, advocated in the piece I referenced earlier. Um, shut down to, 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 to give, to buy more time. You're still doing this predicated on developing a vaccine faster than we've ever developed any vaccine for anything. So in terms of sort of what the logical landing point would be, what you're suggesting seems to be much more rooted in reality. Yeah. I mean, the New York times said, you know, that the normal approach to developing a vaccine will put, will take 16 years. They, 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 they said we could potentially accelerate it to 15 months, but that's if everything just goes perfectly with a, a process that we've never followed before. We haven't followed that accelerated vaccine development process before. Uh, and then we're coupling that with trying to develop a vaccine for a human coronavirus, human coronavirus when we've never developed a vaccine for that type of virus before. Hmm. He is Steve Trost, Associate Director of the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise at Oklahoma State University. Uh, Check out his uh, piece that uh, details his risk management approach to defeating the virus, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Steve Tross, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and it's been an eventful week with respect to the prosecution of General Michael Flynn, the Russian collusion investigation that was the special prosecutor's pursuit of Russian collusion uh, that was not, or at least turned out to be, no, there, there, of course, and uh, the look forward to the Durham report and the competing accusations, as we discussed with Brett Baer, of who weaponized the government to inflict damage on which political opponents? Who better to memorialize all of this in prose, as we try to wrap our minds around it, than the Dan Prof Show Poet Laureate R.A. Droit? He inveighs. Projection is the term the learned use when malefactors act and say jacuge to tar the reputation of their foes by blaming them for misdeeds of their own. Those thirsty for examples, those thirsty for examples will be slaked by learning that the dossier was faked. Collusion with the Russians was their deed to claim that Trump and Putin were in league. The dossier of steel was at its core, just Russian unsourced fiction and no more. But Comey, not too needful of a nudge, was pleased to show it to a FISA judge in hopes the FISA court would be outraged and signed the warrant aimed at Carter Page. Sands dossier, no warrant would be had, 
And so the FBI was all too glad to swear it valid to the FISA court, although they knew it was a flawed report. And Rodham's role as Steele's patroness was missing from what Comey would attest. In short, this application had the cred of life insurance apps from hospice beds. Well done, R.A. Adroit. Uh, Very good. Not too many shows have a poet laureate, particularly one who is uh, uh, keen to offer uh, par excellence in terms of prose. So thank you very much for that. And uh, I also want to offer a suggestion for some weekend viewing in addition to the weekend consideration of that poem. Uh, Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus is my recommendation. Documentary presenting convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. It is the uh, vision of filmmaker, independent filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus as written in the Bible really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. The other movies in the series, The Moses Controversy, as well as The Red Sea Miracle. Watch all three. Watch them at Patterns of Evidence and uh, at PatternsofEvidence.com. Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and all the uh, the two others in the series can be viewed at PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us all week and on this installment of The Dan Prof Show. Have a great weekend, safe, secure, sane, hopefully increasingly open, and we'll catch you next week. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.